0: welcome to another distinct nostalgia by mim
1: brought to you in partnership with life rooms and mersey care nhs foundation trust staying well staying home
0: Our distinct nostalgia soap shows return now with an actress who blazed a trail in EastEnders for several years in the late 2000s. Ashley's been talking to the wonderfully talented Joe Joyner, who played one half of an explosive combination. She played Tanya, the wife of the ever-cheating Max Branning, who was brought to life by Jake Wood. Max and Tanya were introduced as a new family complete with their young daughters Lauren and Abby. Instantly, they had chemistry and became among the most popular pairings in soap for several years. Joe's time on Albert Square was definitely eventful, and to help Joe and Ashley remember some of those wonderful plot lines, we're also joined by our resident, Soapy Simon. Have fun!
2: Just before I came into EastEnders, I had just finished a second series and a special of a um, sketch show called Swinging on Channel 5 and um I'd done a spin off about one of the particular characters i'd been playing called Patty Edwards, who was a sex therapist who couldn't bring herself to talk about sex. It would make her pass out um and I had just got back from um from lucerne where i'd won uh, a rose dora a a golden rose of montreal i think it was called at one point um for best female comedy performance um and i was up against some amazing people like Catherine tate at the time and and so i wasn't expecting to win at all but i had and we'd had a great celebration and um and then i got i pretty much just before i flew off to go to that award ceremony i got the call saying yeah come and come and do eastenders um so I had and I'd finished um I'd finished probably only about eight months previous I'd probably finished um No Angels which was a Channel 4 show I did for for three years um about nurses who were um all living together and working together which I just loved and um so I'd had a really good run and I'd been working consistently really after since I'd left drama school so I'd probably been out about four or five years and um yeah, it was a very big move. It's a very big decision to go into something like a soap because because I'd been ticking along so nicely and work had been so varied and variations is the spice of life, isn't it? So I'd been really lucky to go from a radio play to a drama to a bit of theatre to a bit of this, you know, and a bit of comedy and stuff. So uh, it was a very big leap and it was a bit scary at the time.
3: Mm. I can imagine, I can imagine now... You were basically a new family, weren't you? It was a new setup, yes. Max and 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 yourself. You know, um, Tanya, Max and Tanya. It was an extension, mm. obviously, to the branding side of things in terms of uh, Jim. I think Jim was already in it, wasn't he? With with Dot at that particular. Jim point?
2: was already in it. Jim was already in it, and Charlie Clements, who played Bradley, so Max's son from a previous marriage, was already in it. And um, and the premise was that Max and Tanya, with their along with their two lovely little girls, had moved to the square to. Um, to get away from his last affair a <laughs> um, fair number however many hundred that was at that point and um, they were going to start a new life and he'd said to tanya listen we'll move over in this direction we'll be away from all the past problems we'll start afresh this is it you know you and me forever against the world but what he'd failed to tell her was that his father lived on that square who he had a very strained relationship with and also her stepson um Bradley lived on that square. He didn't mention any of that. So she didn't know any of that. She just moved to this new square for a new start. Um, and uh, I think they pretty much arrived rowing as well, which sort of set the set the tone for the next uh, few years, I think.
3: It, it did indeed. It did indeed. I, mean, I personally think, you know, the chemistry between you uh, and Jake, you know, Max and Tanya was brilliant. It seemed so convincing. It felt to me as though we knew you, really. I know it's, that's, I mean, that's it's bizarre, but it did how did you get into the, under the skin of Tanya? What did you, did you know, I mean, obviously, you know, the general scenario at the beginning, but did she evolve or was it something which, you know, you had a big backstory or what, you know, how did you, how did you develop her?
2: She did evolve a bit more actually, because Max had a big backstory and they had workshopped him and, you know, written him and they were quite clear about his path and his story. Um, And they weren't so clear about tanyas that kind of evolved and came even years later when my mum came on board and you know people kind of got more invested in um she can't just be an appendage to a man (laughs) she needs to be a fully rounded person and character as well and the best way to to fully round a character in something like soap is to bring family in and bring history and and you know and see their roots and and stuff so we had the fantastic Anne Mitchell came in much later on, actually, that was after all the affair and everything, wasn't it? So, but before that, yeah, it's, it's a really wonderful thing to be at the beginning of a character. And I'm really lucky because before and since EastEnders, I've been at the the beginning of a lot of dramas and a lot of characters. And and you have this wonderful process at the beginning where you get to work closely with costume, with makeup, uh, even with set design. You know, they might come along and go, oh, we've got this kind of, we're thinking this sort of wallpaper with, you know... And the longer you're in something like that, the easier it all becomes. And, you know, you'll find that we had a fantastic costume designer, Claire, who, you know, we had both come up with and originally gone, sexy secretary. That's what we need for Tanya. She needs to have pencil skirts. She needs, she needs to constantly be in fear of losing her husband. So there's no relaxing, right? She can't slob about in her pajamas because he will leave. Um, and, uh, which was true. Um, so we, we kind of, we together created this this character and then it becomes really easy she would come to me and go i've found the perfect dress for christmas we'd be months away from christmas but she'd go i found it and i've got it and and she'd be she'd find stuff that was better for me than you know than me and i i'd been dressing myself for years so um it, that's a really great part of it and then you become quite Protective about some of it, which is, you know, I know people have joked in the past about um, Wendy Richards, Pauline and her fruit bowl and, you know, how she didn't like anyone moving that off the set. And, you know, everything had a particular place. But you would find after a while that you would become a little bit possessive like that. So I I had a particular thing after that first Christmas reveal of the Max and Stacey affair. um, I had requested a white Christmas tree just because of some of the characters that I'd worked with uh or you know people that I actually knew that I'd based Tanya around and that personality type I'd said you know I want a white Christmas tree um for Tanya and so in my mind after the fights when the Christmas tree came down and that Christmas fell apart I think a couple of years later we must have had a new designer and she and I came onto the set and she'd got a green Christmas tree and I was like I'm really sorry, you're going to have to go back to the store cupboard. There will be a white one, but we really, I really want a white one. <laughs> um, so it's funny what you become a bit particular about, because it grounds you and, you know, then you start creating a history for yourself, don't you, in soap? So, you know, yeah, it feels like it's yours.
3: You say there that you based the character, the, how you played it on other people. So so you, 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 you'd known people a bit like Tanya out there, Yeah.
2: Yeah, I mean, I kind of tend to do that with any character that you're playing. Sometimes you can pick something up and you go, I absolutely know this person. So you'll use a little bit of yourself and a majority of someone else. And then sometimes you'll have a character and they'll kind of possibly be about three or four people, you know, there'll be a little bit of her and there'll be a way she dresses. And then there might be actually just a token of a woman you've passed on a bus or in, in a restaurant that you don't even know that well, where you've gone, ah, I've, uh, yeah, I see a bit of her. Um, So yeah, Tanya was an amalgamation of a couple of people. and Some of them that I didn't even know that well, actually, just people that I you, you kind of, you see and, and yeah, it, who may be living in a similar scenario, let's say. Was
3: there any of you in Tanya or Tanya and you?
2: I think the mumsy part of Tanya was probably um quite similar to me. I did I, I was really fond, I still am, of the girls that played my daughters and it's a it's a real privilege to to be able to watch kids grow up on set like that, you know? And um and originally it was um, Maddie and Lorna, and you know, look at Lorna today. She's, you know, I, I will always have a really special place for her and be proud of every one of her achievements because I've watched her grown up, grow up through the through the years. And then we, you know, Maddie equally, who's uh, I'm still in touch with, and, and Jack's then came along and, you know, look, she's flying. So you, you do, I feel a little bit mumsy about them all. <laughs> well, I can't help that bit, but I, th- I think that's probably the only bit I definitely wouldn't have put up with what Tanya put up with, and uh, I don't really row <laughs> like that either.
3: <laughs> um, talking about the kids for a second, I mean, you're right, uh, Lorna, um, you know, and, and they grew up in the show, didn't they? And it's quite tough, isn't it, for for kids growing up in... in in soap because they're you know the the whole world you know everyone's focusing on them as kids at a a really young age you know what I mean and it's quite hard and quite tough and uh, I've interviewed several actors who've grown up in soap and then they've their parts have either been taken over by other people or they've Uh, Been killed off or whatever, and they've then got to start all over again. And of course, that's happened to Lorna because she's her character's been killed off, and she's had to carry on. And I know she's doing really well, but it's um, you know, it's quite what I'm saying is it's quite a daunting thing, isn't it, for 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 a child to be growing up in such an environment? Really,
2: it's really daunting, and I feel really lucky that I didn't do that. You know, especially when you're in the show and you come under such a spotlight that you know, as a grown woman who was just a jobbing actress, it was hard enough for me to get my head round without, um, you know, being a kid like they are. And, you know, we should all be able to grow up and make our mistakes behind closed doors. And, you know, (sighs) you know... Uh, particularly Lacey put up with a lot as well growing up you know and and it must be mortifying um at times so I think I think any of them to have come out so well-rounded and confident and and brilliant as they all have I think it's a real credit to them and I also think it must be incredibly hard to work after a soap if that's all you've ever done before I mean I know for me I've been touched wood. I've been really lucky and I haven't stopped working since I left um however many years ago, six or seven years ago, and it's been non stop and it's been really lovely and varied and it's been exactly how it was, was before, you know. Um and I feel really blessed for that. But I'm also aware that a lot of that is because I had done five or six years of jobbing before that. So I'd established myself, I'd established that I wasn't just, a, you know, a one trick pony and I'd made contacts with great casting people and writers and people that I'd, I I was able to work with again in the future. And if you go in as a kid and you haven't got any of that behind you, it then then takes a while to start establishing yourself again along with everyone else and to move away from from what everybody has pigeonholed you as, you know? So, I mean, the best place to do that is to go back to theatre and, and earn your, earn your, you know, stripes, I suppose, which is exactly what most of them are doing, isn't it? Or, you know, you could do what Jax has done, which is um, she's become a whole entity in herself and she's, you know, ticking along brilliantly, isn't she? And And doing fashion and all sorts. So, I mean, the world's their oyster, really, but it does take a lot of bravery and you have to be very positive and keep your chin up i'm sure
3: exactly its determination is it? There's a lot of look 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 of the draw as well and it's um it's like anything in the creative industry even with what you know i'm doing at running you know running a production company you're only as good as the last thing you did aren't you a lot of the time you're judged yeah. by the last thing you did all the time which is uh, a bit scary very scary you've got to be a certain type of person have not you to be able to cope with it um, but looking um, looking at just looking at the kids again I, the, my, my favorite moments with uh, with lorna was that story with the was it with a gerbil or something oh
2: was it a gerbil or a hamster? Hamster. When hamster. She sang bright eyes. Uh, honestly, just just fantastic. And I remember us. I mean, and also she, was it was it Lorna that got her head stuck in the railings as well at some point as well in the in the square in Albert Square? I had to release one of the kids that had stuck their heads through some railings. There were there were some really lovely stories. Um, and Lorna was such a sweetie doing that. Do you remember she dressed in black and she buried him and she she sang bright eyes. <laughs> You're right. It was. It was one of the classic moments, little
3: sweetie. It, it was great because you got the, a bit of comedy in it as well. Because the adults were like, "Oh God, we are having to go through this," you know, and having to be serious for her and whatever. You know, it was quite. It was quite funny. It's really funny. Um, I met Lorna actually. I met Lorna and, um, and Jamie Borthwick Um, because I did a programme for Radio 1, which was actually called Generation Soap. It was about young people growing up in soap. And I got those two together, and they were talking about, at that time, their relationship was flourishing. And I was hopeful, actually, that they might have... Because I thought they were good together, and I thought, you know, I know soap is soap, and they're always changing things all the time, but I thought that was a relationship where it would have been nice to have flourished a bit, you know what I mean? We'll be back after a quick break.
4: But you still loading them and heating them up with all your single shit you've been dropping. You feel yeah. me? Loading them up on. It, it only takes structure. And, and you know, just paying attention to the climate of the game. Yeah. Know what I mean? So do do your homies uh got a role in your in your little you know? Man? Yeah, yeah. We all we all artists over here, man. I'm y'all trying, already? Oh, yeah, I'm yeah. trying, oh, I'm, yeah. trying, I'm, trying oh, yeah. I'm trying to get them on there. Yeah. Quiet. Look, look, look. We all artists, man. We go you feel me, we're gonna have this like Bro, me and my man, like me and my man Kyle, we'd be like, I don't know. We play with this shit I ain't gonna lie, we play with this shit right now for, for a while.
3: Oh, don't
1: lie. Play, with
3: don't it, play with it. it. Nah. Take
1: that
4: shit seriously.
2: You're absolutely right. And isn't it a shame? The main thing about soap is that as soon as things are going smoothly, there's no drama. It's not dramatic enough. And they have to turn it all on its head. And it's a real shame, isn't it? Because I thought, wouldn't it have been a nice balancer... To have one relationship that was working well, and he was a real—I mean, Jay is a lovely, lovely man in real life, anyway. But um, you know, they worked really well together, didn't they? And they were—it was a sweet, uh, yeah. I—I I remember feeling exactly the same and wishing that that one would work out, and thinking, can't they just have a marker so that you know, in amongst all these destructive relationships, we can go. That's what you're aiming for. You're aiming for a bit of that. You need some sort of, you know something on a pedestal for a bit surely
3: yeah exactly now coming into any program like Eastenders or Coronation Street or Emmerdale the big the big the big soaps the, the the audience likes to warm to characters quickly i i know there's been pro, you know episodes i've watched where new families have come in and within 2 or 3 weeks i'm thinking oh god i wish to get rid of them these just aren't working and that that is always the pressure isn't it at the beginning because you've got to make your mark quite quickly haven't you in order to please the audience really
2: yeah I was really aware of that actually and I remember having um quite a difficult time (laughs) a couple of weeks in with a particular producer because you know, you get your stage directions and the stage directions are there for everybody who's read it in the office or before it even hits the floor to get us a, a better idea of what's supposed to be happening in that episode. And sometimes it's going to people who aren't particularly creative a bit further up because they're in charge of different stuff. And so the stage directions are really useful there so that they can kind of go, no, at this point they're in this situation and this is the state of drama. But by the time they get to the floor, they're a guide for an actor, but they aren't um, the law Um and because you're feeling it now and you've got to sort of, you know, be in charge of your own kind of journey and path. And for me, I was a big soap watcher, not necessarily at that stage in my life. I think you have periods, don't you, of time where you, you know, when you're in your teenage years where you want to watch it all the time. And then you might be too busy going out and then you're in your late 20s. You think, oh, you're dipping in again, you know. So, all, but all my life, soap had been around me. My mum and dad had always watched Corrie and EastEnders. My granddad used to love Emmerdale, you know. So... I was really aware of how precious soap is to people who like soap, you know, and exactly that. I remember myself watching new families coming into something and it being such a sort of big assault because there were so many of them all at once and they've sort of walked into your favorite show and you feel like, mm, I don't know, I might take a bit of time to warm up to you. I'm not sure about you trampling all over my favorite show. Um, so I was really aware as a punter that that, that can be the feeling. And I think it was quite early on, in one of the early episodes, uh, we'd only just arrived on the square and we were having, you know, our third row probably. And it said, you know, she's in tears, Tanya bursts into tears and, you know, uh, and all this. And I thought, it's too early. It's too early for me to ask all these people at home to care about me yet. They're just going to get annoyed and they're just going to think she's just a victim or should get a grip or why should I care? you know, it's just too early for me to do this. I've got to leave myself somewhere to go. And I knew that the story was going to go on for years and that things were going to get worse and worse and worse. I thought, I can't give up yet, you know? And this producer came downstairs and she she was sending notes through the director to say, you know, she needs to be more upset. She needs to be crying rather than angry. Um... And I was going to the director, no, I don't, I don't want to be. <laughs> and I knew why. I had my reasons, obviously, because I was crafting this marker and I was like, I know in two weeks' time this is happening and I'm. that's when I'm going to cry, that's when I'm going to break down. Um, and, uh, yeah, eventually she she actually even came to the floor just sort of demand of me that I cry. (laughs) And I had this debate with her. And uh, luckily, the director agreed with me as well. And I said, you know, I don't want to demand this of everybody so far. They don't even know me yet. They don't like her yet. They, you know, we need the people to warm to this family before we ask them to care about the family. So I rebelled a bit there, which was a bit brave because I thought, you know, I might lose this job before I've even started. But um, yeah, she let me. And what can you do? You can't. you couldn't force me, could she...
3: <laughs> In the old days, of course, the actors did, didn't they? In the in the you know the your Doris Speeds in in, in Coronation Street and your uh, you know people like uh, Pat Phoenix and others would famously you know say what they liked and what they didn't like about something. But of course, in more recent years, it's been more difficult because you're making so many episodes as well. It's sort of you know if you're stopping and starting, I suppose it's a bit of a bit difficult. But I know that June Brown does, as, you, as we said before, June, June will say what she thinks, won't she? But basically, you know.
2: Absolutely, Uh, absolutely and I think actually anybody who really cares about their work will to an extent, you know, there's got to be a balance of compromise, of course there has, but uh, it was too early on for it at that point for me.
3: (laughs) (laughs) So did you, had you you worked with Jake before?
2: I'd never worked with Jake before, Uh, we didn't know each other at all and uh, we had one meeting in uh, the Queen Vic with Simon Ashdown, who was a fantastic writer, who was creating the family. It was his, you know, his thing. Um, And I know that they'd... I later found out they'd auditioned somebody in the morning uh, he'd read with, and then he was reading with me in the afternoon, and and so it was between me and one other. And um, at that point, I still wasn't even sure whether I wanted to go into EastEnders because it was such a big thing such a big entity and it was such a big commitment because you know everything else I did was for six months here you know a few months there and um and because I was only just out of a three-year contract with no angels so I hadn't really had a lot of freedom yet anyway um so I was still quite tentative, which probably gave me quite a good edge really of just having fun with it that afternoon. And it was a row, obviously, um, between the two of us and just Simon Ashdown with a camera and um and I must admit that Kate Harwood, who was producing at the time, had said to me, Please come back and read. You don't have to say yes to the job, but we're looking for good jobbing actors. You're a good job in actor. Jake's a a fantastic actor. I think you'll like him. I think you'll be pleased. Please come and read with him. So, uh, and she was right. You know, he's a, he's a great actor, but also we worked brilliantly together. We, I think what we do together is make each other raise our game and, um, you know, we're quick together and, and it works because it feels real then. And, um, it, it becomes effortless in a way you know it's not because you've got so many words and you've got to you know do all this work at such a huge volume because it's soap and, and it's such a massive turnaround but when you're working with somebody good and you both respect each other's way of working and you you know you find a way that's very similar to work together it it, it is it's really it's good and I you know I did enjoy it and I thought oh she's right he is we we would be good together
3: absolutely and it was a, a great a great partnership
5: new to distinct nostalgia dale how the hell did i end up here based on a true story
3: what choice do you
6: have tell the world that rock hudson is gay
4: you're a good looking kid i don't have anyone else on my books like you how about i start to represent you
5: a moving 40 minute drama based on the life and career of rock hudson
4: Yes. Good boy. You just made the best decision of your life.
5: Written by Tim Fountain and starring Michael Xavier and Betty Bourne.
4: Rock. Rock? Strong. Masculine. Rock Fitzgerald? Not Fitzgerald. Sounds Irish. Nebraska, Washington, Hudson. Hudson. What about Rock Hudson? Get your coat on. I'm going to introduce Rock Hudson to Hollywood.
5: Listen here on the Distinct Nostalgia podcast or go to distinctnostalgia.com.
4: We gotta do something about your voice, kid. We're gonna snap your vocal cords. What? Ah! Louder. Ah! Louder!
5: uh, Rock. (laughs) Winner of the BBC's first ever online audio drama award. Look, Dale. I'm dying of this godforsaken disease, and pretty soon thousands, maybe millions, will die the same way. Two big British soaps are celebrating birthdays this autumn, and we're joining the original stars to reminisce about the beginnings of both. It's back to Beckendale in 1972 as we sit down for some memories of Yorkshire favourite Emmerdale Farm with none other than Frederick Pine, who played Matt Skilbeck.
4: Donald Bavistock said to Kevin, I wanted to write a series because we're opening up daytime television about a farm. And he said, Well, I don't know anything about a farm. So they said to him, "We'll come up to Yorkshire and live for two or three weeks and find out. <laughs> it did come off the shelf and it did start. And Peggy said, my name, Matt, was the first word of the series. Because she said, Matt, do you know all those new people over at Pickersgills or something, something similar to that? And it, that was Arthur Pentelow and his daughter, Mr Wilkes. Because the daughter came riding over on a horse and she said, do you know those people? So I've always been quite proud that Matt was the very first word of the whole bloody series. (laughs) And it's still going, still going. How many years later? 50 years later or something.
5: Meanwhile, 90s soap upstart Hollyoaks is marking 25 years. And we have a special interview with someone who was there right at the very start.
2: I think it would have felt more of a pressure if I'd had a character that I felt represented my colour badly. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? But it was very easy because she's this affluent, middle-class, aspirational character and she defies the stereotypes. So it was very easy for me to play Maddie and to be very happy with how they'd written her
5: yes yasmin bannerman who played maddie parker is our special guest as we celebrate a quarter of a century of the team-based soap that's emmerdale and Hollyoaks originals coming soon to distinct nostalgia
3: we'll talk about some of the storylines in a moment but obviously and this is inevitably a question that gets asked all the time with programs like east ends and coronation street you're going into this this sort of monster of a of a programme that's been around for such a long time with such great established characters and actors and things like that and you've obviously watched it and grown up with it and you're suddenly faced with working with people like, you know, June Brown and Barbara Windsor and all sorts of other people, Pam St. Clements, etc. Um, how does that feel? And obviously you were, you, you, you weren't bit parts, you two were very much part of the, the show right from the very start, you know. What was it like to sort of go in and sort of be faced with these, these people and was, was that quite daunting?
2: Yeah, do you know what? I I wonder sometimes whether that audition that I had, which was the only audition I had in the end because I'd just met Kate for talks before that, um, in the Queen Vic, just Jake, me and Simon, I wondered whether that was done on purpose in the Queen Vic to see if it would unnerve me and put me off because... Of course, when I walked into that audition, I was like, oh, my God, I'm in the Queen Vic. (laughs) This is ridiculous. And then, of course, put it out of my head because, you know, had some great materials to work with and got on with the job. And then equally, actually, I'd say for the first couple of weeks of filming, because we were like, as you say, we came in as a family. So there was all four of us um, starting a new job all new people so they weren't it wasn't like I was looking at Jake and Lorna and Maddie and thinking oh my god you're in EastEnders because they weren't um it then at that point early on it just felt like doing another new job starting another new drama and then it, it's not until you suddenly have a scene in in the calf or something with with somebody who like you say is well established that you go oh <laughs> oh my gosh! So it was a weird thing because I remember getting sort of stage fright and nerves about two or three weeks into the job, and, and and as I was recording, thinking, "Why am I suddenly really nervous? I've been here for three weeks." And then I realised it was because I was chatting to Barbara Windsor or something in the pub. And I'm thinking, "Oh, it's because this is really real now." um And then everybody was so lovely and what? I mean, I remember Barbara first meeting me, and maybe I was genuinely starstruck as you would be, and she was so lovely. I was outside the main building and I was just walking back from the canteen, I think, and, uh, saw her in front of me come, coming towards me. And I said, Oh, hello, Barbara. My name's Joe. I've just joined to play Tanya and put my hand out. And she, with her tiny little doll hand, she shook sh- sh- my hand. And she says, Oh, I know you are love. We all love a naughty nurse. Don't we? And, uh, I thought, oh, yeah, we do have that in common, don't we? And she'd said, you know, me and Scott used to love No Angels, used to watch that. And, you know, she was so lovely and warm and welcoming to me that that very quickly, though any nerves you have about sort of the entity that you're in and involved with um, dissipates. Although I must admit, year after year, um, no matter how long you've been in the show, if I'm stood in that square at Christmas time, with that massive tree up, I always get a little thrill because... I that's what I even if I was dipping in and out of soaps growing up we always watched the Christmas special in my house and so even you know even if I'd got complacent it's just a job and you know everyone and you've forgotten what it's like and you you know not even watching it because you're too busy filming it and all that sometimes you'll find yourself in that square by that great big Christmas tree and you have a little sort of tingle up your spine and you go oh, I'm in EastEnders this is mad
3: <laughs> Fabulous, fabulous, and of course um the great thing as well about people like Barbara and June and Pam St Clements and I suppose to an extent Adam Woodgett, because he'd been there a long time as well or right from the very beginning is they've all got great stories to tell as well haven't they as individuals you know offset I'm talking about you know they've got so much in their past and their history I mean you know I've, I've spoke to several people who've said to me they've had some brilliant times just, just chatting around you know reminiscing about things and hearing about the carry-ons or hearing about you know b- bits of past things in their careers you know.
2: Oh, completely! Now we need another name check here. But there's um, who used to play Aunt Sally, and she came into the show as a, maybe a relative of Barbara's.
3: Una Stubbs. Barbara, yeah. of course, was in Wilsel as well. Barbara I was did. in Wilsel. Wurzel- yeah, Barbara was the uh, the front of the of the ship. She was like the sort of oh. um, yeah, that's what she was. <laughs>
2: um, you no, know, I do remember standing in the kitchen upstairs at the Vic with Barbara and you know a couple of the older cast members just chatting and they were just chatting but it was story after story of proper old school Hollywood type people and I was I was stood there trying to remember all the names thinking my dad will love these stories oh my god my dad will love this um you know that and you do they they just have story after story and um it 's uh it's good old school drama uh, yeah, and then you you know i'd go for lunch maybe with june and she'd uh she'd tell me some stories and Barbara would say will you come to lunch with me tomorrow and you'd get the feeling that because you were new these matriarchs were all having a little time with you thanks to just sort of suss out where where you lie and uh where you're going to fit in and whether they're all right with you being around <laughs> so uh yeah I think I might have passed the test so that was all right
3: And the other the other thing with June as well several people have told me is that she uh She'd often, because obviously there's, there's gaps in scenes, isn't there, when you, you've you got downtime, whatever. And she'd chat, be chatting away about, you know, stuff from the past and then click straight back into Dot, you know, two seconds later, you know.
2: Oh, well, not only that, what June does, which is phenomenal, her mind is phenomenal. So bear in mind, she's probably rewritten the scene already as well. And she'll chat, 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 chat all the way up to action. And you're so sort of you're you're busy being polite and listening and replying and having a conversation with her. And then they'll say action and she'll just say her first line just like that without even a breath of air. And you're already your head spinning, thinking, well, hang on a minute. Oh, right. Oh, we're going. Oh, well, we were, we were talking about the cycling shed. Oh, OK, no, fine. You know, and she she's already there. She's in the middle of the scene looking at you. Why? Why you? Why haven't you caught up? What's wrong with you?
3: <laughs> and she is; she's phenomenal. Una Stubbs was in, uh, in in EastEnders right towards the very early days of you being there. She played Auntie Caroline, who was Honey's auntie, basically.
2: I don't remember what scene it was, but I remember Una Stubbs was stood in the kitchen in the Vic with Barbara and me, and we were just chatting, and then they started chatting, and I just had one of those sort of out-of-body moments going, oh my gosh, that's Aunt Sally and Barbara Windsor, you know, who I've grown up watching, just chatting casually in front of me about mega sort of stars, and and also this old Hollywood old-school stuff. You know, I'm, I'm sure one of the stories involved how they put little pearls in the ends of their bras to make, you know, their nipples look good (laughs) in shots and stuff and just all these little secrets and thinking you know this is this is just great I'll just stand here and lap it all up and and I wish I had a good enough memory to remember all the names they were you know talking about but um yeah it's very surreal sometimes
3: well, of course, Una Stubbs and uh, Barbara b- both go back a long, long way. I mean, they you know been around for years and obviously, yeah, Una goes back to lots of those very early comedy series in the 60s and 70s and stuff like that and kitchen sink dramas and things. And Barbara, of course, way back to the carry-ons. We all remember Barbara from the carry-ons, don't we, really?
2: We do. Funny enough, one of the, my first ever theatre jobs was um, at Oldham Coliseum doing the Northern premiere of Carry On Camping, Cleo, Emmanuel and Dick. So I I played Sid James's dresser in it, and uh, it was even it was even funnier to meet Barbara and and then get to know her because uh, she'd been a part of my early journey as well.
3: I probably saw that actually because I I live in Manchester. I remember going to see that at Oldham. So you prob- I probably you probably were in that one of those uh, ones. Yeah, yeah.
2: Um, I probably was because it
3: was made into a little film as well, wasn't it? A TV film, if I remember it rightly. Was,
2: it was made into a film, and uh, the film was on. I think before that, and Amanda, I think. Oh, I can't remember her surname. But fantastic girl playing Barbara in the show that I was in. And, yeah... We, it was. Uh, it's. It's Oldham Coliseum's fantastic place to start, isn't it? You know. Yeah, it's really yeah. good. I
3: mean, a lot of people have started there. You know, it was. Uh, I think it was one of those places where a lot of the early Coronation Street stars cut their teeth at the Oldham Coliseum, didn't they? And Oldham Rep and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, absolutely. And a strange theatre in a way because it's like just quite obscure in the middle of sort of this town, and you, you just, there's no glamour in Oldham, you know. But but it's a great, great, uh, great theatre, you know.
2: No, but there wasn't a cinema either. You know, it was one of those... That's that's what was keeping it all afloat and keeping it going, I'm sure, um, was the fact that there was no other option, which was always a good thing for theatre.
3: <laughs> well, I'm told, I and mean, this is slight side, but I'm told at one time there was a period when there was... About seven or eight theatres in Oldham, or what you know, way way back in the early part of the 20th century, wow. theatre was a huge, huge thing in that, uh, you know, in those in those towns. Okay, so let's let's talk a bit about some of your storylines because you had quite a lot of storylines, quite a lot of dramatic storylines. <laughs> Simon, what should we focus in on first for for Joe to? remember
6: well funnily enough joe you mentioned earlier um how you'd grown up watching the christmas episodes um and it must have been quite exhilarating for an actor to actually be the central focus of Christmas episode um so I wondered if maybe we should talk about the infamous 2007 uh, Christmas day which was a huge moment um in EastEnders and also what it was like kind of building up to that day sort of keeping the secrets of how it would be revealed
3: and, and also also it was quite early again wasn't it 2007 yeah. you'd not have been in the, in the show that long and suddenly you were having this real big focus on you as a family
2: yeah we we, we were Jake we were all really lucky that in that day And it changes, doesn't it, with with whoever's in charge of soap and where you are. But um, during that period of time, they were really keen to to introduce the storyline with three phases over the course of three years. So they were really clear about that when we actually joined, because I was trying to join for two years. and They were like, no, this is a three phase thing. We have like, you know, the initial poison sets in. And then we're going to watch that. And we're going to leave that a year, we're going to plant those seeds, let that affair run, we're going to let the audience know for ages. So I had egg on my face for a very long time. And actually, from my point of view, that was slightly boring to play, because I didn't have to play any sort of duplicitous moments or, you know, anything like that, like, Jake got to do all that and have all the fun. Um, But I got a lot of sympathetic looks from everybody while I was out and about, because because everybody around me knew. And in fact, during that period of time, I got married. And um, in those early days, and I was on my actual real life honeymoon. And uh, uh, I can't remember whether I was in Spain or Italy, because we had two little phases to it. But i we were in a restaurant, me and my husband, and uh, a couple had been sort of looking and whispering at at us. But you know, that was happening in those days all the time anyway. And then just as this couple left, the woman trotted past me and just moved a little piece of paper across the table to me and then left the restaurant. And when I opened it, it said, your husband is having an affair. (laughs) Because she was obviously so many women and people were dying to tell Tanya that he was he was a wrong un because she was so lovely and so happy and, you know, thought everything was working. And, you know, it really touched a lot of people's lives, didn't it? And um, so it was a real it's a privilege to be part of something like that. But because they crafted it so well and planted that seed, by the time Christmas Day came, everybody was just so looking forward to him getting his comeuppance. And and for her to find out, you know, not so much looking forward to that, but to see how it would affect the, the the whole family, what the fallout would be. And of course, this is just, you know, it's one of those, it's an archetypal thing, isn't it? You know, this happens constantly, everywhere in the world all the time, sadly. So there are, you know, you can guarantee that a lot of your audience will have had experience of this in some way or another. So it was good matter, I suppose, wasn't it? But it, I think that... The way they handled it and the time they gave it and the way they let it play out was very old-fashioned. It didn't used to happen. It was so instant gratification. Here's a storyline, it's over in a week. Here's another one, it's over in four weeks, you know. Um, to have something play out for a year like that was, I think, the golden nugget and what made it such a such a great Christmas episode. And, yeah, it was great to be part of.
3: Yeah, just thinking about all of that, obviously the situation is that Max had obviously he betrayed Tanya, but he'd also betrayed his son as well. But the great thing about Soap is that it enables you to look at the different elements of somebody's character. You, you, people aren't just binary characters, good, bad. In a way, you still cared for Max. He was still, a, still a, good, a good dad, in a way, in his own way. OK, not perfect and all the rest of it, but what I'm trying to say is that you cared for Tanya in one way, but you also cared for Max in another way as the audience, didn't you? You know what I mean? It's quite interesting that, that they'd managed to shape a character and that Jake had managed to sort of develop a character in such a short space of time that you did care about the, the different elements to him. Because obviously, as you said before, he had this stuff with his dad as well. And, you know, there's lots of other things. He was he was a complex character, wasn't he, basically?
2: He was really complex character. And they, they did craft that really well. Again, it was another thing they really looked after on purpose. So there were times sometimes when I would go to them and go, I'm a terrible mother. I mean I, I haven't even picked her up from here I'm not doing that you know Max gets all the lovely stuff with the kids and they were like because otherwise he's just horrible <laughs> so they were really careful to balance him out by making sure he was a great father by making sure people understood that he'd been brought up really he'd had a terrible time with his own father so it, it, being a good father was really important to him and he was working on it he couldn't be great at everything he was slipping up over here but wasn't he brilliant at this and you know those things like you say they're really special and uh, and they yeah, he's got away with it for years, hasn't he? Now we all still love
3: him, <laughs> <laughs> and, and of course, and, and, and you know, and the other thing was the dynamics of the family as well. And well, this is true in, in every family, isn't it? That kids latch on to one parent or another. And Abby, for a while, dad was. She was um, her dad's favourite and vice versa, really, wasn't she? And there was a bit of competition there between Tanya and Max over the kids as well, in a way, wasn't there?
2: Yeah, Abby, Abby was definitely a daddy's girl, but also she was, I always thought she was like the little mini image of Tanya. And actually, that's possibly what we were talking about, the relationship with Jay, weren't we, later on? That you kind of, had Abby been allowed to stay in the show into, you know, into proper adulthood would we be watching her put up with some real shit from men because because of you know just being you know but her dad was wonderful and she still loved him and you know would she be a mini tanya in the end because she was a sweetie at heart but actually she would put up with way too much it would have been interesting to see wouldn't it
3: and of course we we cared you know everyone cared about because her character again was very rounded um cared about Stacy. I mean Stacy was a, you know a character you really did care about and actually Tanya cared for Stacy, didn't she, really?
2: Yeah, I mean Stacy was only a kid. That was you know he'd also interfered with this this young love that, between the two really innocent young love and one of the nicest purest things that Stacy had ever had in her life, you know, was was Bradley. And he trash that as well I mean (laughs) what brilliant writing to have a character ruin so many people and you still understand him and you still have a bit of sympathy for him and quite like him and can't help yourself and and you know that's also why you could understand why Tanya was going back because you still liked him too so of course she was still in love with him and she you know she couldn't live without him and she just always thought he might change and he might you know, but also, even if he didn't, she knew, and I think this is absolutely still true of their relationship. She knew that he would never love anyone like he loved her, no matter who he's with and how it goes and what becomes of it he Tanya was his and is his one true love, even if he trashes her all the time and walks all over it.
3: yeah, all the different relationships he's had since there's been no real chemistry at all, it just doesn't it just doesn't. In terms, in terms, of the images on on screen, just doesn't seem to work for me at all. So with that scene, then uh, the Christmas one, you know, was that you were all prepared for it as you say? But w- did you all do it in one take, or, or did we all did you all have moments of laughter and stuff? Or you know, what was how did it, how did it work? Because I'm told that it was done in fairly a fairly natural way, wasn't it? Didn't you didn't they sort of do it so that people they. Uh, do you know where I'm coming from? That was sort of, everyone yeah, was told to react in a particular, you know, to try and get into part and they didn't plan some of it, yeah. did they? You know what I mean? The,
2: uh, the director on that, Tim Mercia, was really, really lovely director to work with. And he was very, um, we were all very respectful of the material because, you know, very often these Christmas episodes and these specials, they have a lot of money thrown at them. You know, they've got big stunts and they've got, you know, big, big, effects and and on all sorts and um this Christmas special was all about the writing and the acting and it was all in one place and I think maybe maybe Boxing Day you know it went on a bit I'm sure we had a rain machine but I think that was the most money that we had spent that was excess on the Christmas episodes you know so it it, it was really all down to the writing the actors and the directors in that moment in those scenes and um Tim was really lovely to work with because he you know it's a fast vehicle soap we don't have a lot of time to do a lot and um you know it's very exposing if you're not if you're not doing your homework and you're not good enough you won't you won't come off well uh, in a soap because it moves too fast for you and there's no time to redo it um and we all really really cared about that material so we were all going over stuff when we were offset and you know um Jake and I've always done that over the years anyway of, of of finding each other at lunchtime and going over stuff if we've got a big row or something because it's the only way to make it work you can't do it there and then so there was a lot of care taken over it. And in the same way the director did, he gave us all time to breathe. He gave us all time to find those moments. And, you know, our crew on EastEnders are so um, so well-versed, you know. They're really experienced. A lot of them have been there for, you know, a long time. And they they are great at just moving the camera slightly here, finding you, going with this. And you sort of all work together to make it all come together. So you could trust that they would keep the focus. And we do have a lot of laughs on that show. We do mess about and and make each other laugh a lot of the time, for sure. But when you're coming down to something like that and we know something serious like that is coming up, we do keep quite concentrated and the atmosphere was quite sombre, I suppose, at times on set because people are trying to keep this this feeling going. Um, So yeah, it was given a lot of time to breathe in terms of shooting and they just rolled that out and and uh, cameras picked off people's reactions um, in real time and I don't remember going over and over that at all really and the same with, I think it was the boxing day or a bit after that when I actually do chuck him out into the rain and I'm there just with the girls sobbing and that, yeah, I, I remember being given the time before that to just have a minute and get yourself in the right headspace for it which... It's not easy to do, usually, on shows like that. So it was, yeah, it was, um, it was a lovely thing to shoot in a weird way, although it was incredibly emotional and sad for everybody. But uh, it was just such lovely writing, so it was a pleasure.
3: And it's one of the most memorable Christmases, I think, on EastEnders. Three
2: men,
4: one sketch show, not enough
5: time. What are you doing? I'm, uh, I'm just recording our new promo for Distinct Comedy. What's with the voice? I I, you know, I just wanted to make it all
4: big and exciting. Build up the tension.
0: Build the tension for what? For listening. It's a sketch show, not a blockbuster film. You just need to say something like, Hey, we're the imaginary people. Listen to our sketch show on distinct comedy. You might like it, if you're into that kind of thing. Huh? Oh yeah? Yeah, that's alright actually. Oh, well, you better be quick before the time runs out. The imaginary people every Monday
3: on Distinct Comedy. Listen wherever you get your podcasts and at distinctnostalgia.com.
5: As well as amazing TV and film nostalgia, this podcast is also home to an epic radio quiz where listeners just like you go head-to-head on their favourite TV shows and films and put their general
0: knowledge to the test. There's a bonus point if you can sing the theme tune, but I know you're not going to, are you? Skippy, 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 the bush kangaroo. He's all I can remember. Yeah, well, that yeah, that earns you a point. Yeah, I'll go for that.
5: The fifth season of the distinct nostalgia mind of the month quiz is almost
0: here, and
5: it needs you.
0: Prisoner cell block. Cell block B? Prisoner cell block H. Oh.
5: Simply choose your favourite TV show or film. And get in touch at distinctnostalgia.com
0: Have a go at three British films, just have a
4: guess Oh, Whistle Down the Wind, Carry On Up the Khyber
1: No, this is rubbish, I'm sorry, no, I don't know They're not bad
0: (laughs) attempts, actually And
5: the two leading minds from across the month compete head-to-head in the final for a coveted
0: Distinct Nostalgia mug It's almost like a trophy The Mind of the Month quiz What kind of programme was The Smoking Room?
2: Oh, I've never heard of
0: it. Mm, I don't no. know if I can
5: accept that. Coming this autumn. That's some of the cracker, isn't it? They uh,
6: always are. <laughs> Only here. Hello and welcome to The Likely Dads, a new series that looks at parenting from the paternal perspective. I'm always wary of people who plan kids. If your life's that structured, stay away from me. We're not going to get on. (laughs) A brand new show
5: from the team behind Distinct Nostalgia.
6: I'm Tim Vincent and each week I'll be joined by my fellow Likely Dads, Mick Ferry and Russell Kane, as well as a series of special guests to discuss different aspects of fatherhood. When a man has an urge to have a a child, it's not spoken about much. Women sort of own this area. (laughs) We're sort of open it was going to be like the old films I watched, where I'd just have a pipe and I'd be in a study. You're going to see your father now for ten minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, children, what have you been up to today? I'm not interested. All right, off to bed. <laughs>
5: An MIM production for BBC Radio 4.
6: We hope you'll join us and subscribe to The Likely Dads on BBC Sounds.
3: So, Simon, what should we look at next?
6: Well, I was wondering leading directly on from those Christmas scenes from that story um, came one of the grizzliest periods of the, um, period the extenders where of course you, you buried um, Max and um, Bury him alive. <laughs> um, to replicate something that his abusive father had done, um, his worst nightmare, you told him, this is going to be your worst nightmare. And yourself and Sean Slater, Robert Kaczynski, um, sort of brilliantly executed those scenes. And I, something that we've sometimes heard on, on these interviews is that very, very sombre and emotional scenes, the actors had a great deal of fun when they were performing <laughs> them. And I thought with something as elaborate as burying someone alive like that. You know, was it fun to film? Did you have a laugh when, when you were doing it?
2: You would think so, wouldn't you? I don't know. I remember just, I couldn't believe it when I got the script. (laughs) I just couldn't believe it. I thought they could have given me a bit of a heads up, right? We could have worked towards this. Could we not have fed in gradually some sort of, you know, nervous breakdown where she's drinking before the school run or something? No, no. Suddenly, out of nowhere, (laughs) here it is. She's burying him alive. It's got to be done by Easter. Um, (laughs) um, So, Yeah, I'm sure we must have had some laughs, uh, Rob and I and poor Jake filming elsewhere in a black coffin. But I do remember what I remember most about that storyline is that it was absolutely freezing. And we were in a forest in Berkhamstead, I think, at three in the morning in February in minus four. And we were supposed to also then have a rain machine. And I remember thinking, crikey, this is, you know, these night shoots are going to be some of the hardest, longest I've ever done because rain machines, you get to a point where you're so cold and then they stop it and then they're going to have to turn it on again. And it's like a reflex. You have to walk towards the rain and get in it. But your every bit of your fibre of your being is saying, no, no, you're going to die of hypothermia. You're not doing it. Um, so I remember them cranking up the rain machines and... Uh, Rob and I being absolutely freezing because I'd had to rush out as well. There was, you know, the big note was she's obviously she's not in her right mind, right? So if you're not in your right mind, you don't grab your, your, your coat before you go out, do you? You, you, he's passed out. You drag him out with Rob and you get in the, you get in the van and you go. So. So it wasn't rational to take a coat. So, you know, all the thermals in the world weren't really going to help under that tracksuit. And, uh, and then somebody turned around, Oh, That was it. They crank up the rain machine. It came on. It pours down. It's now, and, you know, physically probably minus 10. And I'm thinking, this is, I, I can't even think straight, which is probably great for the part. And, uh, luckily the sound man was like, it's too noisy. That rain machine is too noisy here in the middle of the forest. It's all we can hear. We can't have that. We can't have that. I was like, oh, my God, thank God for the rain machine being too noisy to use. So that burying alive could have been a lot wet- wetter and muddier and fr- more freezing for sure. Um, but it wasn't. Um, so, yeah, we definitely rejoiced over that. But, yeah, we, we always had a laugh on set. I do remember crying with laughter some days with the girls and Jake. For
3: sure. What do you think about that storyline? Because I, as somebody who believed in your characters, very much so, that stretched things for me a little bit, if I'm being honest, as a as an as a as a, a viewer. And I was glad that things came back to normal a bit quite quickly, because it was amazing that actually they, you know, okay, their relationship has always been fraught, but he did get back to normal a bit a bit quicker than, you know, in a way. I just felt it just felt a little bit surreal for me.
2: It really uh, stretched me as well. And I was, I'll tell you what I was upset about in in the idea that w- exactly what we talked about, about Christmas. I think the reason Christmas was so brilliant was because they took the time and care to plant the seeds over a year and to give the story breathing time and space for us to get into and understand. And I think you could possibly get to the point that they got to in the woods, but you'd need to plant that seed you'd need to watch a nervous breakdown you'd need to rebalance her with endearing qualities you'd need to find the sympathy and I don't think that same care was taken with that um but it you know what can you do and it's a lesson to me or it was at the time in the fact that you never can own a character completely in a soap because you're at the mercy of new scripts, new writers, new ideas, new producers, you know, you're never fully in control of it. Um, You are if you were there from day one, like June Brown, right? Because no one can answer to that, and she'll do what she wants and good for her and as she should. Um, But you know, when you're coming in much, you know, all those years later now, it's if you, you, you can't keep a grasp on it, tight enough because you'll make yourself ill because you'll be so upset with what they do with it, you know, because one day they will go to you. Listen, The premise of this character, she's the most loyal woman you have ever met. She adores one man. She's one man woman. And this is her life. And her life is him and the kids. And then tomorrow she's burying him alive. Yeah. And she's yes, she's having an affair with the other man. But she I thought she was no, 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 she's not now. She's this. Um because that's that's drama. That's how they keep the soaps going, that's how they move the stories and the people forward. They have to throw these curveballs in and and i remember sort of really struggling with it and thinking i'm not sure i'm i'm invested in this either I, how am i going to make everyone else believe this if i don't believe it i've got to try and you know get a link into this and get a hook into it it's you know it's too late they're not going to plant this casual slow nervous breakdown they're going straight in and i remember thinking I remember being stood in a shop and looking at the front of some of those magazines like Take a Break and, you know, Chat and things. And some of the thing, and I was looking at the front of one of them, you know, uh, my, my husband turned out to be my brother. You know, my, my child went off to war and came back with three siblings that I never knew existed. You know, the, all these things on the front of these magazines. And I looked at them and I thought, things happen. Things happen. I could look at the front of this magazine and if I look at all these mad things that stories that are happening to real people out there in real life, it wouldn't look odd if she said, I tried to bury him alive. But I couldn't, and I went and got him again, you know? So you kind of, it was a lesson to me to learn that anybody is capable of anything, ultimately. And that has to be the premise of drama. That's, that's where, that's what keeps us on the seat of our, at the edge of our seats, isn't it? You must be able to turn a loyal, devoted woman into somebody who wants to kill you.
3: Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know, as a, a loyal viewer and a big fan of, of, of you and uh, of, of the two characters, I just had to put that out that out of my mind quickly. It was like, oh, that never happened. <laughs> so.
2: I, I know. I, I think I buried it too. I literally buried the burial.
3: <laughs> what? So what was it like working with uh, with Rob?
2: Oh, Rob's lovely. He's quite, he was quite a young soul uh, then, and obviously younger than me. So um, we did talk a lot actually in the, in the woods at two in the morning. And um, he's a really he's got a very good heart, Rob. And uh, I think he was he was always very ambitious and, and ready to move on. So, I know, you know, it's great that he's doing so well. Um, And he was, yeah, he was always a real gent. He yeah.
3: played that part really well, didn't he? Because his was a very complex character with lots of mental health issues and things. He played it really, really well, didn't he? You know, I think he was fantastic, he yeah. 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 And his relationship with um, with Stacy and with, uh, you know, with their mum as well, you know, who's a fantastic actress, isn't she, who plays... Uh, um Stacey's mom Jill yeah she's brilliant. So I remember watching in more recent times uh, cuz I I um my partner's got um bipolar and I identified massively with those scenes between Martin and and Stacey. Um they did them so well. It was it that you know again that was where Eastender's really did come into its own in terms of Connecting with reality in a big way when when it can do that, I think it's um, it's superb, you know. But yes, we have the we have the surreal moments as well as we've just uh, as we just we've just recalled. Anything else, Simon, that we want to have a little chat about?
6: Well, yeah, I mean, speaking of surreal moments and discovering new family members and so on, um, she also discovered that Max, um, when they got remarried, Max conveniently had another wife who, who turned up uh, out of the blue, um, and then of course there was seeing her daughters dying and struggling with cancer herself she had quite a lot of heavy storylines and grief to deal with um of her own and did tanya and even had a nervous breakdown unsurprisingly um as a result of of, of all these things so it must have been quite tough um maybe to have played some of those things but quite rewarding uh, as well
2: yeah do you know what i've always found over the um during the cancer storyline and um and i remember particularly one day having to do this scene where i was sort of packing up boxes memory boxes for the girls to leave behind if i if i didn't survive you know which was just it's just awful isn't it it's it's just awful um i found that during that time i didn't think i took my work home but over the course of those months when I it was just relentless misery, really, and awful storylines that you are having to invest in because you can't do them properly unless you, you know, give it your everything. I remember I would, um outside of work, I would laugh hysterically so easily. So, you know, only, somebody only had to crack a joke that nowadays I'd probably just go, <laughs> at, and I would be crying with laughter. It was like your body's so relieved that we're having some joy now <laughs> and that we're experiencing fun that you just got a bit hysterical. And I also remember um, driving home late because my, my kids were very young then, tiny babies, and we'd moved really near to the studio so that I could see them, Um awake at any point um so we were quite close to the studio and in Totteridge and I would be in such a rush to see them straight from work that I wouldn't take my makeup off at work or you know do anything I'd go straight from set get in the car get back see the kids say good night and then I'd you know have a shower and wash it all off but um I, I was in the middle of the cancer storyline and the girls had done, makeup artists had done some really lovely work on broken veins on my face and I was pale because I was having the chemotherapy. I mean, I looked, I looked awful and um, great big bags under my eyes. I mean, I was green and <laughs> I'd left it all on because I wanted to get home for the kids' bedtime. And on the way home, this sheep, uh, sheepdog, was running across the road and, and it got, had left its owner and got startled. And, you know, the cars were sort of stopping and then driving off and being, a, you know, quite a dog lover and, and having had dogs in my family all the time, I thought, well, I can't drive off like everyone else is. So I pulled over and sort of got the dog uh, off the main road and then saw that there was a greenway nearby. And I thought, oh, he must have come from down here. So I walked the dog down this Greenway. And uh, this bloke was there. And I said, is this your dog? He's like, oh, yes, he's gone. I said, he's nearly just been hit. You'll have to check him because a car in front of me looked like it might have hit him. Um, he was up on the road. And he was sort of staring at me really strangely looking. And he was saying, are you all right? And I said, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm worried that your dog might have been hit. You know, and I was explaining it to him. And he was like, yeah, but are you OK? Are you OK? And I was yeah, yeah, I'm fine. So off I went, got in the car. And when I got home and said to my husband, yeah, to stop actually and get... This this guy's cut, but he, was, he wasn't very thankful, you know. He just looked at me weirdly and kept asking me if I was all right. And he said, well, you look awful. You look like you're in shock. And I thought, oh, yeah. Uh, he's obviously thought that I've been hit by a car with his dog <laughs> and I'm in shock, looking white as a ghost, uh, talking to him. So I had forgotten. I'd got it all over my face.
3: <laughs> so, um obviously, as you say, you I mean... You... <sighs> God, you had a turbulent time as Tanya in, in EastEnders, very turbulent time. There were some lighter moments um, and your um, the lady who came in to play Cora, of course, gave you a new dynamic, didn't it? You know, which was interesting because there was a love-hate relationship between Tanya and her mum, wasn't there?
2: There was. It was great. I was really thrilled when they said they were going to bring a mum in for me. And uh, and then to find out it was Anne Mitchell, who's, um, you know, pedigree it it was fantastic it was really lovely and and tanya franks as well as playing my sister so you know i suddenly had a little bit more of my own background to explore which is you know which was interesting and um exciting and so yeah the idea was that we you yeah, know we went and found her in this council state, didn't we and she was um she was a drunk um which was great fun and and there was a, another backstory as well. I think that I had, I'd euthanized my dad, that Tanya had always been a daddy's girl, much like Abby, um, and that my dad, my- Dad had not been looked after by my mum because she was a party animal Um, and I had ended up being the carer. So there was this kind of this bedding in of the fact that Tanya had always been a looker after and a loyal companion. And, you know, that was her destiny really was to look after her little sister who was, you know, had her own drug problems to look after her mum who was a drunk to look after her dad who got the worst of all of them. Um, So, yeah, poor Tanya, she was just, you know, inevitable carer all her life wasn't she i hope she's having fun somewhere now not looking after anyone and partying um, i'm just, shamelessly i don't uh, because when you're filming seven thirty soap time is you know is when you're just about to get in the car on the way home so i haven't to be honest watched eastenders for a couple of years now um so i don't know there may have been phone calls whereby we've got information as to what she is up to but I, all i know is that i left i think for exeter with Jacks, with my oldest daughter didn't I and with Oscar who you know Oscar must be old enough to come back and cause some trouble now he could be a handsome young man couldn't he um so I don't know I think I went to Exeter to get as far away as I could from Max and to start again so who knows what she's up to but I hope she's happy and I
6: I'm sorry to be the bearer of bad news. Oh,
4: what? Oh, no, is she dead? (laughs) She's
6: still alive, but um, it emerged from Cora that Tanya had had to be admitted to a psychiatric hospital because of the increasing trauma of losing Abby. Oh, well, there you yeah, go. Well.
2: Fair enough. I forgot I'd lost a daughter, actually. So, <laughs> so Casually saying, I hope she's having a good time somewhere. But no, but yes, her daughter died. She fell off the roof. I've forgotten.
3: Did you decide to leave then, Joe? Was it your decision to leave EastEnders?
2: Yeah, it, it was my decision to leave. Um, because, uh, and, I, and I was really lucky, actually, because I, I, I did have another year in my contract. I should have been there a bit longer. Um, and I was coming up to a sabbatical and I... I suddenly thought, I don't think I'm going to want to come back from it. Um, and it was purely because of the life circumstances where that our family were very much in story constantly for a good few years. and And the rhythm of the soaps used to sort of go... Six weeks on, six weeks a bit lull, six weeks on, you know, and so as soon as you were exhausted, because remember, you're sometimes learning 42 pages of dialogue a night, 17 scenes a day, you know, and it's relentless. And usually by the time you're going, I don't know how long I can do this the story lets up, the story goes to another family and things are a little bit calmer again. And you're, you know, you're in a bit less, and you've got a bit less dialogue to learn and you start going, oh, actually, you know, this is fine. And then it hammers up. So it has its own little rhythm, usually being there. And for whatever reason, the couple of years where my babies had just been born and they were at their youngest was just my heaviest. And I, it was, we were never out of story and there was no let up. And originally we lived a long way from the place Then I'd moved everything within uh, 20 minutes of the doorstep of work um away from all my family and everybody just to make it all work so I'd moved everything to within 15 minutes of the of the workplace and I still wasn't seeing my kids uh before bedtime or first thing in the morning or enough really um Considering they were so young and they were suddenly sort of a year off of starting school again uh, or just starting school. And I thought, all those toddler baby years have just flown by and I've been working through them solidly because I went back to work when they were five months old. I didn't even have a year off when they were brand new. And I thought, oh, I'm, you know, am I going to stand here in a few years' time and go, oh, it's great because I've got more money? Or am I going to go, where did my baby's first years go? So, you know, there was, I just had to, I had to leave to be a mum for a bit and, uh, and, so I left and then I was at home with them for about six months and then I went off and didn't stop working and worked away a lot more anyway. So, you know, it's the nature of the job, isn't it? But um and I think if you if I was playing somebody like Tamika's character where you can have a bit more variation or you're bubbly or you know, like Alfie Moon, you know, you, you've got your you're rough with your smooth a bit, haven't you? But there were so few laughs for me to have <laughs> that um that yeah, I needed a break. <laughs>
5: <laughs> Take 23. Distinct Comedy presents. Oh, hello. I'm, uh, I'm Julian Carp. I'm, uh, I'm doing a voiceover. Oh, hello. Experience a day in the life of Voiceover Guy. Take 13. I'm playing a pirate.
1: Is this you sure you're in the right place?
5: Written and performed by Jonathan Kidd. Take 24. Aha!
4: Splice the main brace, me hearties. Get on down to Captain Jacob's boat supplies. Sail is now on. Get it? Oh good, let's treat that one as a run through. Aha!
5: Available now on the Distinct Comedy Podcast.
4: Okay then, can we do a series of less piratical wild aha's in threes and we'll splice them on. That okay, Paul? The
5: trials and tribulations of a life spent in voiceover.
1: Sorry, I only have two lemon with honey. I'd like my coffee. I shall scream without a coffee.
5: New and original comedy. Softer.
4: Aha! Well, actually, on reflection, I'm not happy with them.
1: I like what we had, all rough and piratey.
5: Listen on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Or
4: I might have to give you a black spot. That was blood out of a stone. Won't use him again. Eh.
1: If nobody was told what you were meant to do, if there weren't any rules, then we would be living in a
2: totally different format. A brand new podcast... Featuring rarely heard voices from across the UK and around the world.
0: Bisexuality is not really understood because people have biphobic tendencies. And the second you
4: mention bisexual, just their ears pick up.
2: Contemporary conversations around bisexuality.
6: Oh, well, you're still confused, right? No, I'm not confused.
2: We are
1: questioned so much more than people when they come out as straight or gay. It's
5: intense
3: pressure of like, am I sure? You're literally like monitoring yourself. Every episode will include a very personal story as we try to paint a real picture of bisexual Britain.
2: This is Bisexual Brunch. Available now wherever you get your podcasts i've had mental health
1: problems i think for most of my life suicide is sadly something which affects people from all backgrounds
6: my friends didn't quite understand why i was being the way i was being so support was was pretty much non-existent a
5: brand new podcast Brought to you by the Zero Suicide Alliance.
1: I'm Professor Alice Roberts, and this is Life Matters.
6: Few people understand that you just actually just need to just sit and listen to what the person's saying.
1: We do know that there are some people who tend to be more at risk than others. In our feature on the latest initiatives from around the world, we find out how three schoolgirls from Brazil have developed a suicide prevention app aimed at Generation Z.
3: If something bad happened to me today, I'll go there and add a drop of water.
1: We're with the team at Hollyoaks to hear how they've been showing how soap can inspire life-saving conversations among men at risk of suicide.
6: I just feel absolutely nothing at all. Nothing, just dead. This way you get to see Darren's journey behind the scenes. He's really struggling and he doesn't know how to reach out. He doesn't know how to get help. You know, it's always been this taboo subject.
1: Join me, Professor Alice Roberts, for the very first edition of Life Matters.
5: Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts, and visit zerosuicidealliance.com for a free online awareness course that could help you save lives. Dear Miss Jones, may I call you Clementina? Firstly, may I say how nice it was to meet you in the park yesterday. Distinct Comedy presents Letters, from one Border Terrier pup to another.
1: Apparently socks that cannot accommodate
5: toes because they have large holes where said toes should be fail to fulfil any real purpose. Based on true events seen through canine eyes. I now know that I'm definitely afraid of both heights and, not surprisingly, of big ladies. Dear Clementina New episodes every Thursday. Search for Distinct Comedy wherever you get your podcasts. Sincerely yours... Stanley Burke.
3: Woof! So you say you managed to, um, you know, keep working after EastEnders, because, as you say, a lot of the time, the problem with soap sometimes is that you become typecast and it's very difficult to get work afterwards and all the rest of it. But you've, you haven't. you have You've done very well. And you, you've started lots of interesting things and lots of contrasting things as well. I mean, one of the things I think is, is really nice, which I've only recently discovered, in terms of your your talents as, as an actor, is the Comedy side of things, and I loved that series they did for was it Sky that did Marley's Ghosts? Was it yeah, Sky? Yeah, it was gold, was gold, it? Or... I can't
2: remember either, but yeah, I, I loved Marley's Ghost, It was really good fun. And um, and I loved I just loved her. I was supposed to play a different part in it actually, but I I really liked the vicar, and I for some reason, every now and then, something speaks to you, doesn't it? And she spoke to me a bit like Patty Edwards, who I'd the sex therapist I played, where I read it and just thought. I've really got a flavour of her. You could hot seat me as her for hours and I would know exactly what she would say and how she would be. And, you know, you just sort of slot into it. So um, we had and we were a really lovely little group on that. Sarah and, you know, and John and, and us, we we got on genuinely really well. So it was a real pleasure, that job. Uh, to do it was fun
3: and is it finished now there are no more episodes is it done and dusted that one is it sort of over no
2: there was no more i think did we do two series or did we do a christmas one well, i'm not sure how many we did but yeah it's it is it is finished which is a shame because it was fun i find
3: with a lot of comedies nowadays they come and go and they don't get promoted particularly well some of them do you know what i mean there's one that's with elaine c scott uh, sorry elaine c smith which is done in scotland called two doors down
2: Yes. And it's brilliant. It's brilliant. And it's not very well advertised. But do you know what? Do you remember Outnumbered was like that? I remember li- hearing Outnumbered being then being interviewed about it on Radio 4. And so I searched it out to watch because I thought that sounds brilliant. And it was like something like 1030 at night buried over here. And, you know, it was a slow grower. But this is the same with The Office, wasn't it? That was on, you know, it was shoved away somewhere before it went quietly cult and you know so maybe maybe it's actually a good sign of a comedy if you have to search it out
3: it could be there's been others job the job lot i thought was good with russell tovey and uh him and her and various that was russell tovey again so there's been some there's some some little secrets aren't there little comedy secrets that you find you stumble across so is comedy i mean i think i think the things i've seen you that have been comedy that you've been great is 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 that something you'd like to do more of we'd like to do more comedy
4: I
2: would absolutely love to do more comedy. Yeah. Yeah. That and trying again. I did Trying Again with Chris Addison as well, which was one of my first. It was my first job out of EastEnders. And that, that was a comedy. He's just fantastic to work with. And we had a real joy doing it. And, um, it had a great cast and, and lovely writing. So it is, um, she wasn't she meg was kind of you know a lot more down to earth really she was almost the straight man in that to be fair she wasn't like the vicar marley uh marley's ghost vicar but um but yeah for sure i'd love to do more comedy it really is genuinely um a love of mine and, and it's the characters in it that's the thing it's always more fun when you've got somebody that you know is has flaws and isn't perfect they're always much more fun to play
3: Absolutely, absolutely. So back to EastEnders because that's, that's our main focus, and the thing that you probably you know are most well known for up to this point. Um, you know, what do you, what did you get out of it? Do you think over that period of time, mostly, are there any regrets?
2: Ooh, I don't have regrets. No, uh, you know, choice—they're just choices, aren't they? That you make, and I don't—I think they all inform you and make you different i possibly would have had a wig <laughs> if you watch some of the more experienced actresses when they go into a soap and they're older and wiser they have a wig because they know they'll get out of the makeup chair and in the makeup chair a lot quicker and they can over the course of eight years change the color of their hair cut it dye it do what they want in real life um which so i did get stuck with the same hair for very many years which you know i might i might have gone back in time and told myself that a little uh, nugget but um yeah, I, I I don't have regrets. But um what did I get from it? I think um they were you know those early years certainly when the storylines were more um nuanced for me and were uh, we were all establishing the characters and things. Um they were they were a real privilege to be part of and it was it is a massive difference. When you've worked on drama before, to go to something that is working at such a speed like that, that you don't necessarily own in the same way as you do when you launch a new drama. You know, if I'm doing say Ordinary Lies, uh, I'm I'm right at the very beginning of it and I, I get all the scripts, I know the complete story, I can speak to them, we can, you know, collaborate on it, we can work on it, we can design the character together, all bits of it and all elements, and they will stay. But, um, <laughs> you know, you can do as much of that as you can with a soap, they might not necessarily stay at all, like as we've discussed. And so, you know, you do learn to be more flexible and to be more open-minded about where drama and a character can take you. And you learn to work at a massive speed (laughs) and to hit it right. Uh, when you need to but you also you know you stretch your memory my gosh my memory during those years must have been fantastic i could look at a couple of sheets of dialogue and learn it within five minutes you know um because it's a muscle so uh, and it paid my mortgage off. <laughs> I mean, you know, that being the ultimate thing, the uh, ultimate goal for an artist is that you can, uh, you can then take the jobs you might not necessarily be able to afford to take. Some of the theatre jobs or some of the jobs that don't pay as well that you want to do because you absolutely adore the writing or the character or the part. You, you are you're liberated to do that if you've managed to, um, save your money when you're working in a show like that you know and uh so that again you can't you can't knock that
3: <laughs> and of course you got to meet some fantastic people and you i'm sure you've managed to stay friends with you mentioned the, the kids that you're still in touch with and all the rest of it are you still in touch with because you became very close as friends in the in the program are you still in touch with laurie laurie brett
2: no i'm, I'm not in touch with any of them, particularly regularly. Do you know what I mean? Like, I'm I'm in touch with them. As in, uh, I would always love to see them, and um, you know, I'd love to work with Laurie again. She's a fantastic actress. But we, uh, I live out in the country now as well, and a lot of my work has been in Manchester or Leeds uh, for the last couple of years. So there's not a lot that's taken me to London, um, and. Uh, I know better than anyone how hard they all work and how busy Jake is and, you know, how, 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 how when you're in that little world, it's, um, it's all consuming. So uh, I'm not as in touch as people might think, but it's only purely because of life getting in all our ways. And, uh, and I would, you know, I'd love to see all of them at any point, And I'm sure I will.
3: And would you go back into EastEnders now?
2: The golden question Uh, I would never say never I really wouldn't because I'm so fond of that family of that Branning family and what they created and and who they all might have become that um you know I would never say never at all yes I would one day but um you know I may well die as well as we've discussed <laughs> there um, I, I am at the mercy of scripts there may be a phone call any minute where somebody just drops it looks white and says she's dead <laughs>
3: <laughs> well uh, I interviewed not Nick um, Nick Cochrane, who played uh, Andy MacDonald in, um, in Coronation Street for many years and he was in Corrie for what Nearly ten years, I think it was, and he goes back in every now and again to, to you know, when Steve McDonald's got, uh, you know, getting married for the umpteenth time or whatever, and um, and to sort Steve's problems out and things like that. But he said that, you know, his biggest um, concern is always that one day he'll open the paper and find out that they've recast Andy with as, with some other actor. Is that <laughs> is that is that a fear of uh, of people who've been in soap that they're going to be become someone else very quickly?
2: Uh, I don't know. Do you know, I've never even thought about being recast. Um, so, no, I, I obviously am not uh, in fear of it. Uh, so, yeah, I don't know. It would be funny, wouldn't it, to see? It must be bizarre because you won't be consulted, I'm sure. But, um, no, I don't think they'd recast without at least asking you if you'd go back, would they? So, I'm sure I would get some kind of um, forewarning about it. No, I've never, I've never worried about that because you you have to, I think, if you're in one of those shows you've just got to never put all your eggs in its basket because you're not in control of it. So uh yeah they may well kill me off tomorrow or recast me tomorrow and there's nothing I can do about it. You just hope they'll do whatever is best for the show. You're never bigger than the show, are you? No, absolutely. The
3: ultimate uh, Absolutely not. And of course you're talking about characters changing or actors changing, EastEnders has done a lot of that with a lot of the younger characters and of course you had to deal with that with your older daughter in the show in terms of a different character actor coming in how how easy or hard is that to sort of build up a chemistry suddenly with another actor very quickly
2: um that was it was it was fine I mean it was weird for me that you know you're not consulted like I say and I was on maternity leave so actually if Jake hadn't have told me uh I would have just come back from maternity leave to a different daughter (laughs) um because it's it's a machine and it just keeps going uh, regardless of you so uh he had rung and Maddie's had rung and said you know that that was happening and I, I i i think i spoke to them about it um and i don't you know i felt i felt for jack's actually coming in because of all the things we spoke about about the beginning uh being in a show where people are really fond of the show i can't imagine what it's like to have to come in and replace a character in the show um it must be double hard mustn't it um so i just remember thinking i must make sure she's comfortable and you know knows that everything's all right (laughs) i'm not going to not like her because she's not my original daughter (laughs) you know what can you do
3: Absolutely, absolutely. Well, the, the, I mean, you, you were okay because you only changed once. But the um, uh, the guy who plays Ben Mitchell has changed about six times over the last God knows how many okay. years. It's somebody different. Yeah, <laughs> it's a nightmare. I mean, you do get to be fair. After about three or four months of watching them, you forget the other ones. Do you know what I mean? As as a as a viewer, you forget who they were in a way. So it goes out of your head, you know. But it is quite. Um, yeah, it's quite. It is quite difficult at first to sort of get it, get your head round it as a as a viewer. I think sometimes, but anyway, good good stuff, Joe. It's been lovely to talk to you um and to hear all about your your time in EastEnders but also about the fact that you know you've done some fantastic stuff since What what's um what's in the pipeline at the moment have you got something something coming well, around
2: well I am I'm just about to go back to finishing off Ackley Bridge series 4 which is a channel 4 show set in a kids school that um we were in the middle of filming during lockdown uh so we we had to stop and stand down so we'll be going back to film that um and I would normally be filming now series 4 of Shakespeare and Hathaway with Mark Benton uh during which we definitely do have a lot of laughs on and off screen um so uh I'm gonna miss that because we're not doing that this side of the year Uh, again because of that that damn virus so um we'll hopefully be uh bringing you that again next year so I've got that to look forward to um so yeah finishing off Ackley Bridge and hopefully doing Series 4 of Shakespeare in Hathaway later on next year.
3: So yeah so Joe, it's been lovely to talk to you thanks very much indeed for talking to Distinct Nostalgia.
2: Thanks very much for having me it's been lovely.
0: You're listening to Distinct Nostalgia, home to some incredible interviews with stars from all your favourite soaps. If you enjoyed today's episode, why not head over to distinctnostalgia.com for a treasure trove of programmes just like this. Lisa Williamson of Hollyoaks fame talks about life on the programme.
1: So we all got to know each other quite well. If you were chatting to some of the writers about something you've been getting up to, they would sort of write that in. So you started realising that some of your personality traits would come into the show. I got the script and I thought, what have I been up to? I got pregnant, I had the child adopted. It was, you know, you just think, wow, the writers have really gone to town for me
0: today. You know, it's, it was great, fantastic. Andrew Linford and Mark Homer reflect on sharing their first kiss on EastEnders in the 1990s.
6: When the, the Blackpool episode came out, front page of the tabloids, it was like, get this scum off our TV and things like that. Just horrendous stuff. It, it was kind of the start of, of, of a big thing, really, and we're privileged to be involved in, in storylines like that, I really am.
0: And Nick Cochran discusses his life on the street as we continue our celebration
6: of Corrie at 60. They were just brilliant with us, you know, because we were a couple of little sh- who've fortunately found their way into the TV's biggest show without really knowing what they're doing. That's bottom line. That's where me and Simon were at that point. Myself and Simon are old-school people. We were brought up properly, mate, and, and so there was a lot of respect then, more... Than there is now.
0: These programs and many more are available at distinctnostalgia.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to be notified whenever a new episode becomes available. And if you like what we do, then please consider supporting us on Patreon. Every penny helps us to make even more amazing content just for you. Go to distinctnostalgia.com and click on the donate button. Thank you for listening, and bye for now.
1: Distinct Nostalgia is brought to you in partnership with Life Rooms and Mersey Care NHS Foundation Trust. We've lots of activities for you to do at home at liferooms.org. Staying well, staying home.